Well, good morning, everybody, and thanks, Karen, for that reading. Are you, like me, suffering from conflict fatigue, from seeing constant conflict and suffering in the world, for example, the Middle East and Ukraine, not to mention the persecution of Christians in the Middle East and Africa, the justifications of hate we see in the world around us, or it might be that we just seem to be a less civil society. I had cause to complain about a nosy neighbour who went on an all-night day bender, and uh, the Wagga City compliance officer told me that such anti-social acts have risen by 30% since COVID. And it would be perfectly understandable if you feel a certain amount of fatigue and apprehension, because despite that we belong to the Prince of Peace, and no, he will bring a government of mercy and discernment, as John taught last week, the era we live in now seems to be marked by dispute and conflict and hate. At a superficial level, the passage we consider today seems to add to this conflict fatigue, where judgments are made and invasions of another nation executed. And what makes it all the more poignant is that it's at the behest of our God. The God of peace we read about in Isaiah 9, 1-7. So is our God any different to the strife caused by humanity? After all, uh, he's been likened to a cosmic bully who flies into a rage when Israel flirts with another nation. So this morning we're going to learn about the rightful judgments of God, his endless mercy and his grand plan for a new people that no earthly power can thwart. And we're going to do this under three headings. Firstly, God's felled fig tree, God's broken rod and finally God's fruitful branch. But let's pray. Lord God, we come together as we examine perhaps a difficult passage as we consider your judgments, and yet it's also full of mercy and hope. Do give us ears and hearts to understand your word, that it will result in changed minds. Amen. Firstly, God's felled fig tree. We need to get our bearings in this passage by noting that God is largely speaking against the northern kingdom of Israelites. Now, we're talking about 700 to 730 BCE before the current era. And at this stage, the nation of Israel had split into two kingdoms. It's confusing, but the ten, the ten northernmost tribes became Israel in the north. The southern two tribes became what's called Judah in the red, clear as mud. And so in Isaiah 9, we read a continuation of God's judgment of Israel, the northernmost tribes. Read with me verses 8 to 9 of Isaiah 9. The Lord has sent a message against Jacob. It will fall on Israel. All the people will know it, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who will say with pride and arrogance of heart. So immediately we get the motivation of God's judgment against Israel, this pride and arrogance of heart of his people, which means they've been usurping God's place with their own abilities which means they ignore God in verse 13 and attempt to overcome any obstacle by their own means. So the illustration that Isaiah gives is that of bricks that have fallen down, which is a metaphor for God's judgment on Israel. And Israel responds by saying, well, we'll just rebuild it and we'll do an even better job. 
And so if God cuts down our fig trees, verse 10, we'll just replace them with cedars. There is true delusion here as they show full self-assurance by saying they will rebuild bigger and better whatever God has torn down. Uh, These are not dodgy builders who may paint over some cracks in a wall rather than repairing them. No, Israel at this stage believes it can paint over the cracks and the structure will be better. An immediate application for all of us is what the Israelites have built their lives on. This attitude reminds me of a parable that Jesus gave in Matthew 7, where he says, those who listen to him and obey him are like those who build their house on the rock and will not be washed away in the coming flood. Whereas those who build on their pride of life with the attitude they know best are like those who build their house on the sand and will be washed away. A special judgment is given against the leaders of Israel. Read with me verse 16. Those who guide this people mislead them and those who are guided are led astray. That leadership has gone astray means intentional injustice in verses 1 to 2 of chapter 10, where we read, Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. This is not injustice to the poor by inept leadership. This is intentional justice. This perverted leadership just has to be judged. Head to tail in verse 14 of Isaiah 9, or as we might say, top to bottom. That is, they will be judged comprehensively. The outcome of these judgments to God in verses 18 to 21 is that the people will be consumed by the fires of their own wickedness. Read with me from verse 18. Surely wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It sets the forest thickets ablaze so that it rolls upward in a column of smoke. By the wrath of the Lord Almighty, the land will be scorched and the people will be fuel for the fire. They will not spare one another. So Isaiah is really picturing an out-of-control bushfire, isn't he? And it is often the case God uses the own excesses of the people to be their punishment. So you reap what you sow, Galatians 6. So they will be consumed by a nation that is even more godless, that is even more ruthless than they are, i.e. the nation of Assyria. There's an escalation of God-defying manifestations in this passage, isn't there? Indeed, Barry Webb in his commentary describes how a moral progression is discernible in this passage from moral decay through social disintegration to national collapse. Is it any wonder that we get this refrain from God repeated in verses 12, 17 and 21 and then verse 4 of chapter 10? Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away, his hand is still upraised. Now, it might appear that God's judgment is very excessive, that his rage is over the top, but we must remember that this was a people he blessed, was the apple of his eye. He rescued them from Pharaoh. 
He defeated their enemies, enlarged their territory in the kingdom of David when David was king, and now they failed terribly. They contradict God's own love and mercy in their behaviour. We can draw an immediate application from Isaiah 9 that we should not approach God as judge with the roles reversed. We should not approach God as judge with the roles reversed, as modern man does. What do I mean by this? Well, C.S. Lewis explains it well. The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches the judge. For the modern man, his, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. Man is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defence for being the God who commits war, poverty and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. That's not how we should approach God, but we should approach Jesus as the rightful judge of heaven and earth. For what do we say in the Apostles' Creed but we believe in Jesus Christ, he ascended into heaven and is seated on the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Point two, God's broken rod. In chapter 10, verse 5, we see a redirection of God's judgment to the very tool, the nation of Assyria, that he used to punish Israel. So why now does God judge Assyria when they were only really doing his bidding? He orchestrated so that Assyria would invade Israel. Why does he now judge them? God judges Assyria because of their arrogant self-deification, because of their willful pride of heart and the haughty look in their eyes, verse 12 of chapter 10. This willful pride and haughtiness is exemplified in the godlike statements of their own power. So read with me verse 13 of chapter 10 of their boasts. By the strength of my hand I have done this, and by my wisdom, because I have understanding. I removed the boundaries of the nations. I plundered their treasures. Like a mighty one, I subdued their king. And so the Assyrian generals boast about their exploits in verse 9. So they say, will Kalno end up like Carchemish? Meaning that they've conquered Carchemish, which was in the upper Euphrates. Then Kalno, which was about 160 kilometres south, will end up the same. We're so powerful. The Assyrians exaggerate their conquering might. And notice the repetition of the first person singular in verses 13 to 14. I, I, I. Their superinflated ego is like many leaders of the last century and even now. But just like then and now, ours is a jealous God who will not tolerate counterfeit God's like Assyria. For God will wield an axe against Assyria in verse 15. And then Isaiah interweaves three images of humiliation in verses 16 to 18. And these images are of debilitating sickness, of devastating fire, of a denuded forest. Indeed, so complete will be the Lord's judgments that in verse 19 we get this image of forest destruction so that few trees will remain, that even a child could write them down. 
but we also see God's grace. For remember Judah, the kingdom to the south, observing what's going on, seeing God use Assyria to judge Israel to the north, to wonder, are we next? Indeed, the towns the Assyrians conquer go from the north of Palestine right to Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. So there's this dominant effect going on, isn't there, of towns falling one by one to the Assyrian might. No wonder Judah is petrified. But no, God says to the tribe of Judah, you will be saved by my hand. The Assyrians will just stop north of Jerusalem, verse 32. But then we get this even greater picture of God's grace, which is all-encompassing. We see a greater plan of redemption, of rescue, as despite God cutting off Israel in Isaiah now, he will preserve a godly shoot. Read with me verses 21 to 22 of Isaiah 10. A remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. Though your people be like the sand of the sea, Israel, only a remnant will return. God will bring about a remnant of faithful people from this once disobedient nation. It will be a remnant of Jacob, verse 21. Now the mention of the word Jacob is very important because it means the common ancestry the common origin of the now divided kingdom. So what this is saying is that this remnant of Jacob means a reunification. And in promising this certain hope in chapter 10, verse 26, God recalls two saving events from Israel's past to give them hope. How he demonstrated his mighty redemptive power when he delivered their forefathers first from Pharaoh and then from the Midianites. An important truth for us is that Isaiah is revealing God's big picture, his end play, to gather representatives of the nations. For we now live in that time of God's favour when this is happening, and it's happening through the church, as feeble we might feel the church is. And we should take heart because, as someone said, the Lord of the church is the ruler of the nations, and while ruling the nations, he never forgets his church. Let me say that again. The Lord of the church is the ruler of the nations, and while ruling the nations, he never forgets his church. That's an incredibly important truth to hang on to. As the Christian church in the West is under attack, in a way we hitherto have not experienced, i.e. the values of Christianity that our nation kind of adopted in identity, sexuality, morality, are being reversed. I was reading the New York Times this week, as you do, um, and I read an article by an agnostic writer who said this. He lamented that Christianity once provided a shared narrative, a glue to bind a complex society together. That is diminished now. So we can feel like Judah must have felt with the descent of the Assyrian army approaching Jerusalem from the north. It's so easy to bunker down as Christians, isn't it? Because culturally Christians in the 21st century can literally feel like the barbarians are at the gates. 
witnessed the rise and almost dominance of moral relativism, exemplified in the almost pathological hate against author J.K. Rowling, author of the Harry Potter books, as she defends women's rights against gender ideology, where those who judge J.K. Rowling become judge, jury and executioner. This is understandably can make us fearful and apprehensive of the impacts of moral relativism in our lives, in our workplace, our sporting arena, community organisations, our family, that we might be found out to be one of those nasty, intolerant Christians. So how do we cope with this? By knowing the faithfulness of God as we read in Isaiah. For he reminds Isaiah and Judah of his previous love for them and deliverances. As we read in verse 26 of chapter 10, then God gives more words of comfort in verse 24 of chapter 10. My people who live in Zion, do not be afraid, the Assyrians who beat you with a rod and lift up a club against you as Egypt did. Or in verse 27, he talks about lifting the burden of their enemies. In my devotions last night, I was actually reading Psalm 83, and the psalmist talks about those that conspire against God's people conspire against God himself. I mean, conspire against God, I'd rather fight a lion. For God has always preserved those who love him, even through suffering and persecution. And we are included as part of that. We are part of the remnant of verse 22 which leads to my third and last point, God's fruitful branch. As we come to Isaiah 11, we should note how in the previous two chapters, the forest of human arrogance has been cut down. Then here in chapter 11, we get this image of a shoot, a branch, shooting out of a stump, a stump that one would think is dead or lifeless, and yet it gives new shoots, a bit like the epicormic shoots that come out of eucalypt trees after a fire. For after fire there is growth, after judgment comes hope. Read with me verse 1 of Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. Now this is one of the most important theological passages in the Old Testament as it shows that human rebellion must yield to God's judgment, grace and mercy. And while this new branch, this new shoot, could be seen as the new people of God, and that's certainly one meaning, it's moreover talking about a Messiah figure. Indeed, the rest of Isaiah unpacks first the nature and secondly the mission of this coming Messiah. So firstly, as to the nature of this Messiah, this Messiah will be of kingly descent. He's described in verse 1 as belonging to the line of Jesse. Now remember, Jesse was King David's father. So this Messiah will be of that line. And remember that long genealogy that you sometimes wade through in Matthew 1, in the Gospel of Matthew. What Matthew is doing there is proving that Jesus is of kingly descent. Moreover, this Messiah will have a devotion and obedience to God in verses 2 to 5 of chapter 11 that we have not seen from any king of Israel, not even King David. 
The repetition of the word spirit in verse 2 indicates that this Messiah will have a comprehensive empowering of the spirit, meaning in the spirit they will have great wisdom and understanding and so forth. Now I've already told you that the promised Messiah is Jesus Christ. Indeed, Luke's gospel tells us how Jesus' ministry was conducted in the spirit. So even as an adolescent, we're told in Luke 2.40, Jesus grew in the spirit in wisdom and stature. It's a fulfilment of Isaiah 11, isn't it? To show he is the Messiah. Secondly, we see the mission of the Messiah, this new shoot. Read with me verse 4 of Isaiah 11. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions to the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. So this Messiah will judge without favouritism, but with mercy. He will know the plight of the exploited, and he has ultimate power over the fate of humanity. But moreover, Christ the Messiah will bring peace where peace before was impossible. So in verses 6 to 8, we get these images of prey animals, animals that would be preyed upon, lying down peacefully next to predators. Verse 6, the wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat. Now some take this as a literal portrayment of the new heavens and earth. I think it's actually figurative language and is hinting to something much deeper. For it's pointing to a new garden of Eden where sin and conflict cannot exist. It's a picture of creation being put back into joint. So remember the fall, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sing, sin entered the world and so creation has been corrupted. God is going to restore that. But moreover, the entire earth and not just the temple of Jerusalem will once again be the dwelling place of God. And how the people of this new shoot will gather under the banner of Jesus Christ in verse 12 of chapter 11. For the new heavens and earth is not just about the restoration of the created order, as we saw in verses 6 to 9, it's moreover about relational restoration. It will restore broken relationships, firstly between us and God and then between each other. That is, those nations, those people that previously hated each other, were at war with one another, will be, have peace and fellowship through Christ. Read with me verses, verse 10. In that day the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. Note the phrase, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time in verse 10. The first time, the first big act of redemption happened when God saved the Israelites from Pharaoh. The second big time of redemption is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it was a far greater act, wasn't it? Because it brings peace to sworn enemies. And we see the fullest expression of this, this ingathering of God's people in the New Testament. So in Acts 2, you might remember Peter preaches uh, at the gates of the temple from memory. And it just so happens, it's actually not a coincidence at all, 
that there are people from various nations gather at that time that he preaches to. And so in Acts 2 verse 9 tells us there were Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, and so on. God was gathering his people back to him from all nations now, not just the nation of Israel. And ultimately this ingathering, this unification of God's people will be inaugurated completely when Christ returns again. You see, our God is a God of reversals. He is a God who can turn situations around. For even in the judgments of Isaiah 9, devastation will lead to glory. For where are God's judgments centred at this time but on the nation of Israel, the northern tribes? But where does Jesus begin his ministry? Where does Jesus emerge from in his public ministry? But from the north of Israel. Matthew's Gospel especially notes that Jesus began his ministry in the north, in Galilee. Now these people were despised. And so when the disciple Nathaniel hears that hears from, about Jesus from his brother Philip, he has this comment in, in the first chapter of John. He says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? People from Nazareth were not held in high esteem. They were considered backward. We might say bogans like someone who spent a decade living in hay. Yet this is where Jesus determines he'll start his ministry. God is redeeming an area he previously judged. So let's tease out some of the implications of Isaiah 9 to 11. Our God is not a cosmic bully, but is well justified in his judgments. His holy nature means he has to respond to sin. And yet in his love, grace and mercy, we become the new shoot, the fruitful branch. We experience the power of the Spirit living in us. Tremendous, isn't it? An important question is, are you? Are you part of this new shoot? Have you given your life to Christ? Are you confessed your rebellion to him and determined to live by the power of the Spirit he will give you? Because now you have an advocate of Christ who pays for your sin on a cross, so you may not. If you're not a Christian, I do pray you would consider this. And for those of us that are already part of this shoot, this new shoot, that are Christians, do you let the Prince of Peace correct you and minister to you through the Spirit? Do you show the fruit of the Spirit, love, peace, gentleness? Something I have to work on every day, just ask my wife. And yet we're called to do that, aren't we? Do you, in your judgments and actions, make sure you're not the cause of conflict, that your judgments and actions are not petulant in getting your own way? And B, when wrong is done to you, which inevitably will happen, when someone judges you harshly, wrongly, do you know that God judges all and that his judgments are really the only ones that count? that his opinion of you ultimately is the only one of importance, knowing that despite the harshness and treatment of others, God in effect has put a permanent tree guard around you. You are so precious to him that Jesus the Messiah, King of heaven and earth, came to earth as a baby, an infant, in a country that was war-torn, 
occupied, full of conflict and turmoil, to bring hope and salvation, to bring comfort and joy. As we conclude, knowing God's plan of redemption through the new shoot, the Messiah, and that we are grafted into this new shoot, as many people from many other nations are, our only response really can be that of praise, can't it? As Isaiah does in chapter 12. So let me finish by reading the first two verses of Isaiah 12. In that day you will say, I will praise you, Lord. Although you are angry with me, your anger has turned away, and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself, is my strength and my defence. He has become my salvation. Amen.